0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Robert Talese, W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. His new book, Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place, is just out from Oxford University Press. In the United States in particular, there is almost no social space today, whether that's Thanksgiving dinner or going shopping, that has not become saturated with political meaning. In his new book, Talese argues that contrary to what many democratic theorists have argued, democracy is something that we can do too much of, and that it is in fact being overdone. Features of everyday life are overwhelmingly transformed into expressions of political identity, and this transformation undermines democracy itself, since it ends up undermining our capacity for civic friendship, or the capacity to see our political rivals as equals. Talisa's book is a provocative contribution to discussion among political theorists about the problems facing contemporary democracy, and from a practical standpoint, it also suggests that a way to counter this situation is to consciously seek out social interactions and spaces where politics is off the table. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Robert. Hey, Carrie. How are you? Welcome. New Books and Philosophy. You've been here before, I think. <laughs> I have. Um, but anyway, so it is a it is a pleasure to be talking with with my co-host actually about your new book, Overdoing Democracy: Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place, which is just about to come out. So, as usual, I like to start with um, a bit of background about about yourself. Uh, you know, tell us as much as you would as much as you'd like, and then uh, in particular um, how you came to write this book.
1: Sure. So. Uh... I did my PhD at CUNY, um, as others have, uh, in 2001, um, that same year I got hired on the philosophy faculty at Vanderbilt, uh, which is where I've been ever since. Um, so, uh, enough about me, uh, the book. Um, so, you know, I tell the story about, uh, how I came to write the book, uh, early in the book, um which is that uh, I was having lunch with a friend who I hadn't seen in a while, uh, sort of a week or so after uh, our last presidential election in the United States, which I'm sure many listeners will remember was jarring for uh, lots of us. And um, as we were talking, I I came to realize that um, not only was she disappointed with the election results and not only was she anxious about – the future of the United States and what politically would be coming down the pike. Um, She was also um, really anxious about the coming holidays. Uh, So she was to host a Thanksgiving dinner uh, in just a few weeks um, involving lots of her um, family members uh, who apparently uh, politically don't see eye to eye. And she, you know, was, was really um, sort of uh, out of sorts about what this family gathering would be like. And she told me that she had actually been reading um, newspaper and magazine columns that were offering advice about how to um, navigate political um, disputation over the holidays. And, um, you know, I, I just found that such a strange... It struck me as just strange that um, this holiday season in the States, we have Thanksgiving quickly followed uh, by uh, the Christmas holidays. Um, So this holiday season that's supposed to be, among other things, about um, reconnecting with family um, was now um, this sort of generally recognized site of um, angst. And uh, so I started looking at these columns that uh, went out home online and started reading the columns about how to survive the holidays given um, rancorous, you know, uh, political disputes over the dinner table. And um, the advice largely was of the sort of normal um, type that one would expect, you know, lots of, by the way, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these columns. You can go Google surviving Thanksgiving politics and get 50 million hits. Um, And, you know, the advice is this sort of, you know, middle of the road scandal, like don't raise your voice, you know, uh, don't take the bait, um, you know, be polite, you know, be sure to listen. Um, And then it almost invariably gets into what like strike me as sort of dark uh, places of advice, like um, um, if you can avoid going to dinner, maybe you should consider doing that um try not to be in the same part of the room of the, as the people who trigger you. Um and so um again I started to wow, that's it's interesting that you know uh this is such a popular genre of holiday uh column writing. Um and really it's a um it's a genre that thrives on um people looking to turn to complete strangers, you know, not therapists, not analysts, you know, just people who write for magazines and newspapers for advice about how to deal with their own family at an event that's supposed to be about reconnecting and reflecting with your family about uh, a year, uh, another year completed. Um, And then it struck me that there was no piece of advice given in any of the articles that I read where the columnist just said, look, just tell your family that, you know, the Thanksgiving holiday is just not for politics. Nobody ever said that. And that struck me as odd. Um, Again, uh, just thinking like, well, surely there's a place and a time for, you know, real political argument and dispute. Um, And um, would never think to suggest to anybody that those conversations and arguments, even when they're heated, Um, shouldn't happen, Um, I just started thinking, well, maybe they don't have to happen every place that they can happen. And maybe like many other things worth doing in our lives, um, political argumentation and disputation sort of has its time and place. And, you know, maybe the the dinner table uh, over Thanksgiving is just not the right place for that kind of thing to happen. Um, So I started having thoughts of that kind. And then uh, you know, the, several months later, I got an invitation to, uh, to do a, a TEDx talk here in Nashville. Um, and so I I did this TEDx talk, uh, called, um, putting politics in its place and I hadn't yet decided, I thought I might write a book about this, but I hadn't yet decided whether to write one. So I give this, you know, what is, I think, you know, it's an 18 minute talk or something They give you, you know, fewer than 20 minutes uh, for these events. Um, and after the talk, uh, somebody approaches me in the lobby of the venue, um, in which the TED event was. And this guy says to me, uh, I swear this is true. I don't know if this made it, I don't think this made it into the book, by the way. Guy comes up to me and says, well, uh, professor, I agree with everything you said up there. I said, oh, well, thanks. That's great. "Um, It was a surprise to me, though. I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, I looked you up online and I saw that you're a professor of philosophy. And so I figured you'd be a liberal. And I thought, this is a guy who has inferred from the fact that he listened to me talk for 18 minutes and I still don't seem to have horns coming out of my head to him. That I must not be politically allied with his the rival team or whatever. Um, and I thought, wow, that's – given the content of the talk, and I'm like – this is a deeper phenomenon than I thought it was. So sort of when I had that interaction with the guy, I said, you know, it's probably – probably now is the time to try to sort of work this up um, into a book, um, which I did. Uh, so a lot of my research uh, up until this point has been about uh, democracy and you know, sort of epistemic conceptions of um, – democratic decision-making. Um, and then, so maybe there's a bit of an irony in the fact that uh, after spending, uh, you know, the better part of uh, 20 years as a philosopher writing about democracy, I've finally gotten around to writing a book that recommends that, um, you know, we sometimes do something else.
0: Okay. So, <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's, you know, right in the in the title, overdoing it. And, and the, you know, the basic argument of the book is that, You know, democracy is something that can be overdone, um, and that we are overdoing it. And that um, because democracy is is a is a good, it's 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 maybe the least worst political system, or however you want to put it, um, it's worth saving. So we need to stop right overdoing it. So I guess the first the first issue here, um, I mean, in in the book, you, you you know, lay a lot of, 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 you know, groundwork in terms of, you know, what is democracy? um, Why is it a, a good, you know, why is it it a worthwhile system, one that should be, um, you know, that, that we value and we should value. Um, And I, I, you know, invite you to say those things as you, as you wish. Um, But I guess the question, first of all, is just, um, what is it, in your view, to overdo democracy?
1: Well, good. Um, so, you know, I've been um, in the course of writing the book, and now that it's written and about to come out, in the course of in the course of talking about the book, um, you know, I realized that uh, the, the the central thesis. You know, it's possible to overdo democracy or to put it um, more strongly, um, we are overdoing democracy um, and that's bad uh, for us politically, that that's um, likely to be heard as the expression of some kind of anti-democratic Sentiment, or some an expression of some kind of view that ultimately wants to claim that democracy is not such a great thing after all, or not so valuable after all. So um, the the first chapter of the book, and in fact the first two chapters of the book uh, together, are aimed at trying to show or trying to argue um, that it's fully consistent with. A commitment to a uh, robust and participatory conception of democracy, to hold that um, democracy is the kind of thing that we can have too much of, or that we can do too much of. So, let me just spell out then the 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 overdoing part, mm-hmm. the 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 too much part. Um, you know, there it, it's. It's pretty familiar, you know. We're all committed to the thought that, you know, when it comes to at least certain kinds of good things or valuable things, there could be too much. Um, you know, we can overdo cheesecakes um, because cheesecakes are, you know, subject to diminishing utility. With every bite, the uh, the, the value of the subsequent bite is diminished, um, and there's a point at which another bite of cheesecake is positively displeasing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, democracies, of course, are not cheesecakes, and they're not. Their value is not like. Um, Uh, the value of cheesecakes. I don't think that democracy is subject to diminishing uh, utility. Um, But there's this other sense of overdoing a good thing and a different sense of what it is to have too much of it. And that's the sort of crowding out phenomenon. And um, sort of we we overdo a good by way of crowding out when our pursuit of it or our practice of it or our enactment of it um, dispels uh, other good things from our lives or from, um, or prevent, are doing it to the extent that we are prevents us from pursuing other good things. Now, um, the crowding out phenomenon is slightly different though, related to, uh, just what we might think of as opportunity costs, right? You know, the pursuit of every, you know, the pursuit of anything precludes you from pursuing other things, right? So that's not the point, right? Um, the point is rather that, um, Sometimes when we pursue a good thing to the exclusion of certain other good things, um, the good that we're pursuing suffers because the expelled goods are correlate or in some way necessary to realize the full value of the good that you're pursuing – So let me just give an example that sort of runs, I I referred to a couple times in the book. Um, Another true story. Uh, I once had a friend who decided, sort of out of the blue, um, that she would um, achieve maximal uh, physical fitness. And Mm -hmm. so um, she devoted herself uh, in a way that was uh, impressive just in and of itself to um, an exercise regimen that was really intense. And Uh, She achieved really remarkable results in a relatively short period of time. Now, the problem wasn't that she exercised so much that she wound up, you know, hurting herself. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that she spent so much time at the gym working out that um, she lost all her friends. We all mm-hmm. lost touch with her. She was never around on the weekends. You know, we, you know, nobody would see her at the normal places where people would socially interact because um, every aspect of her life was sort of devoted to the project and sort of organized around the project of furthering her fitness goal. And so, um, there's a classic case of sort of overdoing something. It seems to me, it's a, this person whose sort of commitment to the goal of becoming physical fit actually looks pathological. It seems to me, um, but part of the pathology of it is not just that you know what, what's so great about fitness. You say no, fitness is a is a really important goal. It's important to be healthy. Let's lay that down uh, maybe it's important to be healthy for more than merely instrumental reasons maybe the good of fitness or of health is intrinsic maybe you know there's something about being healthy that's good just for what the just for the kind of good that it is I think you could say all that about fitness and still say well, but part of the part of the value of being fit is that fitness enables you to do other things besides working out <laughs> <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Fitness enables you to engage in certain kinds of rewarding experiences with others, to go on hikes, to travel, to do things, um, to attend uh, to other kinds of activities in your life so that those activities are even more rewarding than they might otherwise be. And so in the case of my friend, it looked as if she not only put at the center of her life a goal um, that is, we're just hypothesizing, an x hypothesis totally worthy. But in putting it at the center to the exclusion of all else, um, the fitness itself became pointless. That is, it it, lo- it it she lost all the goods that fitness is for, one might say. And so in that way, it looked as if something pathological had happened so she was in this excellent physical condition but then the commitment to fitness expelled all the goods from her life that fitness kind of needs us to be able to pursue in order for it to be properly the kind of value it is now so the thesis uh, overdoing democracy is that democracy is that kind of pursuit Um, democracy is a good, and I'm perfectly willing to say it's intrinsically good. Uh, You don't have to be a democratic instrumentalist. That is somebody who thinks that the goods of democracy are purely instrumental um, to hold that democracy is a good whose profile is complete or is properly ordered only in virtue of the fact that it enables individuals to realize other goods. And so when democratic politics... When our political allegiances, along with our partisan animosities and hostilities, sort of infiltrate and become sort of uh, embedded within the whole of our social interactions uh, within everything that we do, Um, we become sort of like my friend who overdid her fitness routine um, or overdid her pursuit of fitness might be a better way to put it. when democracy becomes all we do together, um, we become less good at doing democracy and we lose out on some of the goods that are necessary in order to realize um, the, realize fully the good of democracy. Is that helpful?
0: Yeah. So, so what what are – I mean you kind of hinted a little bit social – relations I mean certainly in the on in the analogous case of the exercise right. um, you know she exercised so much she, she can no longer enjoy friends uh, etc but so what what is it, what are the goods that are being crowded out that democracy is supposed to you know is is a good for
1: so um, there are t- sort of two levels at which I think um, one might answer this um, uh, so you um, Democracy, if it's to thrive, um, and in fact, we might just say this sort of, to, you know, political philosophy 101 thought about democracy, um, is that um, democracy is the proposal uh, among everything else that democracy is. Right? Democracy is the proposal that um, uh, a relatively stable, relatively just social order is possible. Uh, Among persons understood as citizens, uh, and here we mean by citizen, uh, social equals. So democracy is the thesis that you can achieve a relatively just and stable social order without there being an elite ruler. You can achieve that kind of social order when the citizens rule themselves qua social equal. Now, what that means is that, um, or let me add one more sort of uh, premacy kind of thought. Um, part of what you're, um, uh, part of what uh, is involved in social equality, uh, in sort of having a community of people who are social equals. Um, is that you know when we're social equals, you know we get to think our own thoughts and come to our own judgments and assess facts and claims and arguments and evidence according to our own best light, and nobody gets to browbeat us or intimidate us or dominate us uh, into um, sub, you know sort of subduing our own judgment uh, uh, simply. Uh, because they think we'd be better off uh, or would be more correct uh, if we were to do so. So um, when you have uh, social equality or people who are uh, regarded as social equals, you're also going to have a lot of disagreement um, and a lot of political disagreement. And so democracy is the the view that um, uh, a stable and just social order is possible among social equals, despite the fact that they're going to be ongoing, persistent, sometimes heated uh, disputes among uh, the citizens about the precise shape of the political order, and so uh, what democracy requires um, is a way or uh, various ways of sort of managing um, disputes uh, about things that matter a lot to us, like you know freedom and autonomy and justice and uh, and and the great political values. Now, a lot of the institutional. Um, uh, uh features of that are prevalent in democratic societies or strategies for managing um, ongoing political disagreement um, but there's also an ethic of citizenship that's required uh, for democracy to work well and that ethics of citizenship, um, requires of us as citizens, at the very least, it might require a lot more than this, but at the very least it requires us to develop within ourselves the capacities uh, and dispositions that will enable us to regard uh, our political rivals as nonetheless our equals. And in this case, what that means is that if we're going to succeed at democracy, we have to be able to regard those who we think are committed to misguided political views within a broad range, um, as nonetheless um not merely entitled, not merely um uh uh the kinds of people who get an equal say, but entitled. They have to we have to see them as people who are entitled to an equal say. And so one of the goods that democracy needs in order to thrive is um, A kind of moral capacity within the citizens to see, even in their political rivals, um, virtues and merits of a sort that could underwrite their social equality, despite the fact that we have to regard them as politically misguided. So. One sort of level of the answer to your question, what are the goods, um, is that in order to thrive, democracy needs for us to be able to see our political rivals as nonetheless our equals. When we overdo democracy for reasons uh, having to do with um, two um, social phenomena that I I take it we'll, we'll get to talk about in a minute, which is the polarization phenomenon and what I call political saturation. When we overdo democracy, we we, we work, uh, uh, we do things that um, dissolve that capacity, such that mm-hmm. um, our political rivals, or we, 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 we engage with one another in such a way that we are caused to increasingly regard our, our political rivals as inscrutable, as alien, as benighted, as um, depraved, um, and as threatening. Uh, and there's really robust data on, on, uh, on this that the uh, book gets into. And so when we overdo democracy, we lose the capacity to see our political rivals as our equals. And that means that democracy starts going badly, because then democratic decisions really just are. Um, uh, a matter of the tyranny of the majority, or a matter of the tyranny of whoever you know wins the election, if it's not majoritarian. Um, and so you'll have huge parts of the population um, very pleased that they've gotten their way, but um, they've gotten their way simply by imposing their will uh, on. Um, Uh, another portion of citizens who didn't get their way. And when democracy becomes just a contest for power, um, then we've sort of given up on what makes democracy even valuable. And I think that we've sort of weakened the case philosophically, weakened the case for democracy's merit. Um, So that's one. Secondly, um, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Secondly, you know, just go back to the Thanksgiving Day uh, dinner stuff. Um, You know, when we overdo democracy, um, we allow all of our social interactions to be sort of colored by or filtered by our political allegiances in such a way that um, we create uh, opportunities and openings for um, uh, uh, division and enmity uh, where they needn't be, um, and so if you think that one of the v- virtues of a democratic society, it's say in contrast with an authoritarian regime, um, you know, you might think that well, one of the things that makes living under uh, an authoritarian, you know, so crushing. Uh, is that um, you're constantly having to view your everyday comings and goings, your everyday activities, the things that you say, the clothes that you wear. You're constantly having to assess yourself and, and the minuscule aspects of your life in terms of how well they will square with the with the party line or with the authoritarians' dictates. And so one of the things that's so oppressive about authoritarianism is that it makes everything, at least potentially, if not actually, sort of a matter of political expression. Um, when we overdo democracy, we invite into democracy a similar kind of phenomenon where um, everyday interactions become expressive of political allegiances and therefore ways of establishing borders and boundaries between people who might otherwise have, you know, a whole lot uh, of ground upon which to interact about things other than politics. Um, But those things get crowded out and politics becomes the main lens through which our everyday interactions occur. And so one of the things that democracy is to, supposed to provide for us is some relief from the idea that, the, the, that politics has to be a 24-7, 365 occupation of, of us. Um, it sort of gives that up and makes everything a, an act of democratic citizenship. And so... Other kinds of social relations, you know, relations of care and support and ambition and aspiration, uh, attachment to things, um, become just more ways of expressing one's political allegiances. And as it turns out, um, with you know fairly robust sociological data, um, uh, this is what's been happening in the United States and in the UK and in some other democracies in Europe as well. Um, workplaces, workplaces. Uh, Public spaces of all kinds, commercial spaces, um, hobbies, um, these have all become fairly tightly tied to political profiles such that it's now the case that in the United States, we've got pretty good data on this, um, you know, the number of clocks that are in your home are a good indication of your political valence. (laughs) Really? Yeah. More clocks, the more conservative you're likely to be. If you really? have maps in your house rather than clocks or art, um, yeah. that, that swings liberal. Now, you might not be surprised by that kind of thing. You might say, oh, these are different. these are different tastes. Um, but when you start thinking about the ways in which um, ordinary uh, interactions, ordinary sort of features of our life, you know, like what you do on vacation, do you golf and fish or do you lie on a beach? Turns out that <laughs> these are really good indications of uh, of your politics. Um, I just saw today, actually, uh, a story on Vox um, where um, some lab had done an experiment with um, uh, you know they had uh, some. A modernist, you know, drawing some piece of art that was uh, modernist done in the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. and it looks like it's done in crayon. I'm not even remembering the name of the artist. I'd never seen the piece before. And it turns out that, you know, you just present people with the photo of this drawing and just say, is this art or not? Um, if you say it's not art, you're far more likely to approve of president Trump than mm-hmm. if you say it's art. <laughs> so, um, Politics sort of enters into our everyday sort of seemingly non-political behavior in these ways that sometimes are surprising, sometimes when you think about it, maybe not surprising. But what that means is that our everyday spaces, our everyday casual, unplanned interactions, just, you know, sort of chit-chat with the person standing behind you online at wherever you happen to buy coffee. We can get into talking about how, you know— Where you buy your coffee tells a lot about what your politics are. Um, Wherever you buy your coffee in the States, um, the person behind you online is increasingly likely to have voted like you. Um, And so, you know, our interactions tend to sort of be coded and sort of organized around our party allegiances, which means our everyday interactions really just put us into – contact with people who tend to be much like ourselves. Um, And so, although the country, uh, like other democracies, has become in the aggregate um, more heterogeneous and diverse in all kinds of encouraging respects, um, the local environments that we inhabit have become increasingly politically homogeneous in the past 20 years. Um, and that just – that looks problematic to me from just realizing uh, the Demo- – that, that looks problematic to me from the point of view just realizing the democratic ideal. That is, you know, we're more and more often expressing and engaging in behavior that mm-hmm. marks our politics. But those behaviors are more and more enacted in spaces that are themselves due to their homogeneity, not properly democratic spaces.
0: Okay. So, um, good, good. Um, so who, who are, who are we here? Um, you know, we talk about we, um, uh, so maybe you could say something about who the, who you have in mind when you're talking about we, and then also, um, you know, we are overdoing it. Um, do you have any thoughts about, you know, why we, whoever we are, uh, are overdoing it I mean how, how we got to this space I mean it wasn't just like you know an election did it I mean, you know the election might have triggered a particular response in your in your friend and in, in terms of her worries about uh, you know Thanksgiving or something um, uh, but but that—that's not, you know, that's not we overdoing it, or that doesn't explain why, really. So could you could you say who we are and 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 why we, however we are
1: defined, are overdoing it? Sure. So um, by the we, I mean democratic citizens, um, and the book is driven largely by data that um, is collected. In the United States and in the UK, but is, is and these phenomena are especially pronounced in those two democracies. Um, but they're not exclusive uh, to them. You can get similar kinds of data about uh, democracies on the continent, and interestingly, you can get similar kinds of data in democracies um, where there is um, currently. Um, uh, ascendant, uh, populist and nationalist movements, uh, such as in the United States, <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, in the UK. And so, um, b- the book is about, uh, us as democratic citizens. Now, just to spell out, I want to sort of, there are three sort of findings now talking particularly about the United States context, um, that I think are really revealing, uh, of, uh, our attitudes, um, so um, trust in government and its institutions and its officials um, is especially low um, for as long as Pew uh, Research has been tracking these things. Um, past 10 years or so, we've seen a steady decline in sort of popular trust among the citizens in government to solve problems, to look out for the concerns of ordinary people, to um, get things done that uh, serve the common good, so on and so forth. Um Similarly, cross-partisan hostility in the United States, that is animosity towards the other side, um, is especially intense. And by some metrics, cross-partisan hostility uh, in the United States outstrips cross-racial and interfaith hostilities. Um, and by the way, this is w- one of the metrics that's used as sort of attitudes about, um, about interparty marriage. Um, in the United States, <laughs> interparty marriage is more frowned upon than interracial marriage in the United States. Wow. That's interesting. Right. OK. Um, yeah. Yeah. OK. So they're interesting data to this point. And let me say one other thing about the interparty hostility. Um, you know, it might not be you, you might think and you'd be right. Like, well, you know, hating the other party is nothing new and intensely hating the other party is nothing new either. And that's true. Right. Um, you know, uh, my father hated Democrats, <laughs> but his hatred for the Democrats was targeted at um, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> was targeted at the party leaders and the party, the, the 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 candidates. What's become more intense and more pronounced, and what's relatively new for us as a citizenry, is that interparty hostility has now sort of gone local. Um, now, the person who dislikes Democrats, uh, it does so more intensely, and the animosity is now more commonly targeted at rank-and-file citizens who happen to affiliate, not even our members, happen to affiliate with the other party. So the hostility has become sort of more local, more neighborhood, you know, more in the neighborhood, as it were, rather than aimed at or targeted at whatever happens to be going on at the Capitol uh, or uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, mm-hmm. So thirdly, Um, We as a citizenry um, uh, seem to all agree, (laughs) as the majority, pretty broad majority of the citizenry in the United States today, agree that politics has become uh, uh, too fractured, too divisive. uh, We're we're sick of all the animosity and rancor and um, want to see more cooperation from our politicians, Um, And Something like 60-something percent of – close to 70 percent of people in a recent Pew uh, study report this. Um, Most of them also report that the reason why politics is so bad is because the people in the other party won't just capitulate. (laughs) And so just think about those sort of three findings. There are others that we could talk about that are discussed in the book too. But you can just think of those three findings. You say there is – if the democratic ideal – does involve this um, uh, this this moral attitude, let's call it. I call it civic friendship in the book. Um, mm. This attitude of, within a broad spectrum of opinion, you know, there there are liminal cases, and we could talk about what they are. But within a broad spectrum of opinion, there's a lot of room for political rivalry among fellow equal citizens who deserve an equal say. That spectrum in our minds as citizenry is getting increasingly shrunk such now to the point that um, uh, uh, we now report not merely thinking that the other side is misguided politically uh, and, uh, you know, their policies are to be opposed. That's old news. Mm. We now report that uh, we're now more than ever, at least since Pew has been doing this kind of research, uh, certainly within the last 20 years. We're now more than ever likely to report that the other side, by which you just mean, rank and file members of the other major party in the country are positive threats to the American way of life. Now, that's new. And that's not that's that is a clear indication that civic friendship has 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 fairly drastically eroded and, um, I don't think democracy, I, I don't think democracy makes any sense among civic enemies. So, so I asked you why also, I mean. So good. Yeah. Um, so th- I think it's an important feature of, of the argument of the book, um, that, uh, and it's on one hand a revealing sort of, if I'm right, this is a revealing, uh, uh a part of the thesis, um, uh but it's also you know independent of whether it's right um it's also uh sort of important for the for what i see as the, as the broader story you know we we're we're used to and by the way the bookstores are now filled with um uh contributions to a genre about what's gone wrong with democracy that tell some version of the story that some non-democratic force has invaded the political sphere where it is unwelcome and actually um, uh, has within it uh, the seeds of democracies undermining. And so this non-democratic force usually... Capitalism or neoliberalism or commercialism, or um, in some uh, conservative circles, sort of uh, uh, atheism, uh, sort of invaded the democratic sphere and started dismantling it from inside. Um, the account I'm giving, though, tries to show that um, uh, this vulnerability is internal to democracy itself. That is, um, our the, the way that we get into a political situation where civic enmity is being fostered by our um, our social interactions and engagements um, is by way of what I'm sure are sincere, authentic attempts to realize the democratic ideal. That is, the, the why question is: democracy is such an important crucial social good, it is such an inspiring and um, dignifying aspiration that, like ideals and aspirations generally, we're always going to fall short of. Um, But the falling short has led us to what looks to me just like an error of a, sort of a, sort of a, a, um, uh, an error of sort of baby logic, right? Um, the fact that we're falling short of an in, of, of an important aspiration doesn't entail that the right course of action is to redouble the effort, right? Yeah. Um, and so, built into democracy is this aspiration of self government among equals. That's a worthy aspiration. Still, sometimes it's the case that if we want to best pursue uh, our deepest and most important aspirations, sometimes we've got to aspire to other things in addition to it. Does that make sense?
0: I, I suppose I was, you know, I was more thinking along the lines of. Uh, you know, if we go back, you know, 10 years or something, um, or perhaps a little longer, you know, so, so this has been a, uh, you know, it didn't happen overnight, you know, this has just been building up, let's put it. Now we're kind of in a, you might think a crisis of some sort, but any, in any Kent. um, So I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to wonder, trying to trying to get an uh some assessment of you know why you think this has happened i mean sure that that's what i'm looking at. i mean you don't you don't really yeah. discuss much in the book uh o- almost not at all you know any sort of economic trends that might be behind it or or right. um uh you know or or other other sorts of of trends and you know so I was just wondering, you know, again, I mean, what, 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 what is it that's bringing this about? Uh, or, or do you have any, any thoughts about that? You know, sure. why?
1: Yeah. Sure. So I think that um, uh, um, part of the story here um, is the, the familiar story about the technology um, the communications technology, uh, the social media technology, uh, that's surely part of the story. And I take it that listeners are going to be familiar with that aspect of it. The echo chamber filter bubbly kind of, right. um, uh, thought about it. And, um, uh, so part of the book is completely, um, on board with roughly that kind of assessment, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that can be the full story. Um, I think that, uh, and the uh, you know the the social factors that are ultimately the, the right causal explanation uh, uh, for this are very complicated. I don't know how to tell the story actually, but um, surely one feature that is related to but distinct from the sort of social media internet kind of ex- filter bubble explanation mm. is that, um, and perhaps this is a, itself just one other ramification of the technology. Um, The ability to exert control over our immediate environments, um, in the book, I give the example, you know, you know, living in Reno no longer means that you have to give up fresh seafood, You could be in the middle of a desert, right? And, um, uh, and you know, have fresh seafood, um, uh, the way that we can commute, the way that we can communicate over great distances in the way that you and I carry right now are, um, has meant that we as individuals exert more and more control over our immediate surroundings. And what that means is that the world that we inhabit Um, uh, is more than it was 10 years ago even, 15 years ago for sure, surely 25 years ago. Um, What that means is that um, our worlds are sort of increasingly made to order. Um, By the way, just this afternoon, I I got a new microwave oven from Amazon (laughs) because, you know, the local Target just didn't have it and so i went online in the target store went online found it on amazon ordered it while standing in the you know standing in target and it showed up the next day now there are all kinds of ways in which what a what a wonderful world we're in in another sense like well what this means is that we're more and more able to contour the world in our own image which means now that because um due to very complicated sort of social uh, sociological factors because our political um, our our political activity and our political preferences have become so deeply intertwined with our lifestyle choices. Um, By the way, just a side note on that, just think of how much of what passes for political critique these days really is just a matter of mocking consumer choices
0: well, I mean, I would, you know, just to, I mean, I, th- I think for a lot of people, you know, so if you think you're, so you're in Target, you order something from Amazon. I mean, I, I'm thinking about the people who, you know, who work at Target or right. who are in the Amazon warehouse, um, uh, who, whose control of their lives is, you know, lower than ever because of... You know, scheduling by computers and and you know other miserable, or they don't even have a job, or they can't make ends meet, and so forth. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a there's a huge there's a huge there's there's you know ample evidence as well of 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 people who are in less control right. of their lives because they are completely not in control of their you know ability to work or, or do what they you know work or work as much as they'd like or work as much as they'd like at a job that they'd like, um, which is totally eroded. And so, you know, being able to be, it's true, you know, being able to, you know, click on a button and get a microwave the next day is an amazing bit of control that we didn't have 10 years ago. But I mean, the overarching, you know, sort of situation of you know, the majority of Americans, I mean, which we are not, you know, we're, we're not in that really as, as, you know, as, you know, tenured professors and what have you. I mean, we're kind of, you know, insulated from that to a great degree. Um, but for most people, it's just not true that they're in greater control of their local environments. They're, they're much less in control of their local environments
1: well you're right that um the sort of economic domination uh of uh larger and larger portions of the citizenry um this is a this is a problem that um has to be part of uh part of the full story now you're right also that um the control that workers exert over their their lives Uh, Both on the job and as is becoming uh, the case even outside of the job where now employers, you know, claim an entitlement to control what people do on the weekends and, you know, whether they smoke and all these things, right? Um, You know, the stuff that uh, Elizabeth Anderson's most recent book is about, uh, the private government book. Um, So, yeah, this is all true. But note... um, one of the the ways in which um, technology um, uh, has shown up in that particular aspect of our national milieu is that um, uh, that angst, that insecurity, um, those changes to economic prospects have all been transformed into a kind of lifestyle politics, into a kind of political identity. Now, of course, you know, you don't don't have to be Marx, (laughs) Uh, you know, to have sort of views about false consciousness and the ways in which economic interests are sort of – uh, distorted and turned on their head uh, to see that that's got to be part of, of the story. Um, but, um, you know, uh, exposure to um, uh, um, online sources uh, that um, uh, promote a particular view about uh, the shape of the economic and political world and what's happening in it and who's to blame um, these are no less uh, uh, used visited frequented by um, the people who are working at your local Walmart than they are the baristas uh, who are you know have a second job as they're you know finishing college uh, at the starbucks um, and so at least in this respect um, uh, more and more of The world around us, even if you're, as I'll concede, you're correct to say, the level of individual control that we ourselves exert over it uh, varies, uh, perhaps uh, markedly with um, various economic markers. Um, But nonetheless, the turning of the everyday features of our life into expressions of and markers of are political loyalties understood here as mapping onto not some utopian political thought about you know the democracy to come or about the egalitarian society to come but those identities are tied to political partisan identities travails and hostilities that exist right here right now right um, that th- that's part of the story. It's not only that th- that everything's become sort of an expression of our polit- political identity, it's that our political identities are always focused right here, right now on the political divides that exist right now as it's going on in real time. Um, so, um... Uh, just think, uh, one sort of marker of this is, um, uh, the difference between, you know, you might not like, well, in fact, I know you carry well enough to, you don't like either of the things I'm about to mention, um, Starbucks and Dunkin', Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. I don't like right? them. I- I have. I thought that I, I. I thought that you didn't like Starbucks coffee. Oh, no, <laughs> uh,
0: I, I. Well, I, I don't want to start plugging for Starbucks, but I. <laughs> I, I actually like Starbucks because for a lot of reasons. So no, I have no problem with
1: Starbucks. Okay, well, um, just, <laughs> just in the states uh, for those who might be listening who uh, might be elsewhere, <laughs> uh, in the states, you know, it's clear that Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts are serving a different population of citizen. Starbucks is serving a clientele that likes the momentary illusion of speaking a foreign language, which is, you know, where they rip off all the names of the drinks are taken from foreign languages. (laughs) Um, The decorations uh, are always scenes of faraway places. That Starbucks clientele skews liberal, which also skews cosmopolitan. You're more likely to to vacation outside of the country if you're uh, if you're liberal, or it goes the other way. If you know you're, you're, if your last vacation was someplace you needed a passport to go to, uh, chances are very high that you are not conservative. Um, contrast that with the inside of a Dunkin' Donuts. Now, what's the Dunkin' Donuts slogan? Do you know? Have you been in Australia for too long? To uh,
0: yeah, right. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, we don't have a Dunkin' Donuts. And,
1: yeah.
0: I, I mean, they, they don't make – I, I
1: like espresso, so what can I tell you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> The Dunkin' Donuts uh, slogan, and has been for a couple of years now, is America runs on Dunkin'. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. okay. So look, um, that's a clientele that's interested in coffee and carbohydrates because they want to be alert at work. It's a just it's, and so the and think about all of the um, what passes for political critique that mentions your lattes and espressos versus the po- kind of political critique that talks about attention Walmart choppers.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so look, my coffee preferences, yeah, uh, you know, look, watery coffee. Don't, I don't like watery coffee. So well,
1: look, there, there. It turns out that um, uh, where you get your coffee is is also I, one I of these sort I of features understand. that's highly correlated with your political Correct. leanings. Uh, yeah. So that the person who's sitting next to you as you're drinking your coffee, uh, or the person who's standing next to behind you online, that you might have a casual interaction with, is not likely to present you with anything that's going to be unfamiliar in a context where you have to recognize that the person is still a decent human being that's the trouble
0: right okay well i mean you know just sort of to point out that you know a lot of times you know where Dunkin' donuts and where starbucks choose to put their outlets Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, we we don't have a choice in that. They make their decisions about where they're going to put their, you know, franchises or, or whatever. Um, right. I don't have access to, you know, so even if I wanted to go to Dunkin' Donuts in certain places, <laughs> I, I don't have a choice. I mean, just, it's true. that's not up to me. And so, you know, you know, a lot of that, I, I sort of wonder if that sorting... Um, you know, maybe there's some sort of a feedback loop there where, well, sure. you know, yeah. don't get will- Donuts is, is, you know, they're going after a particular slice of, of the citizenry. That's where they're going to put their, um, where, where they're going to put their, you know, stores. Um, and, and Starbucks is making a similar sort of a decision. Um, you know, I mean, but if in, in New York, for example, I mean, you have both, and you'll have like people from you know you know these same sorts of people you know rushing in there to get coffee or the little stands on the corner with their you know awful coffee, but still you know I, you, you get all kinds of people, you get the wall streeters, you get the, you know they're all there, but that's because it's New York
1: and and, and so you have the- all of them. Yeah, Outside and in the large of- metrolog- in, in the large cities in the United States, these trends, at least with respect to certain consumer choices, um, are less pronounced. Note that throughout the country, I should say this: throughout the country, the trends about um, McDonald's and Burger King. There are no right. Th- th- you don't find these trends with the large, long-standing fast food. Um, you do find them with places like Chipotle versus Chick Fil A. And you, and you already know what the valences are when I just say what they yeah, – just say Chick-fil-A versus Chipotle. You know. Um, but the point just is, uh, you know, that, um, uh, that in ways that are not always obvious to us, um, our everyday behaviors um, often both take on for us an expressive political function. And even in cases where they don't for us so much overtly take on that expressive political function, they're viewed by those who see us as politically other, as expressive of our politics and as explicable. Uh, uh, by way of our politics, that is, the person wearing a camo shirt. You know, there's a lot of this that goes on in Nashville. I should say there are places where you see a lot of people wearing camouflage. Often, the camouflage also has a big American flag on it, so it subverts the po- You know, subverts the purpose of the camo because because the purpose ultimately is not to camouflage you; it's to express a certain political leaning. Um, and you can contrast that with, I uh, talk about this in the book, uh, the tote bags, <laughs> you know, how many tote bags you have is a good signal of what your politics are. Yeah.
0: So let me, we, we, we're running out of time actually. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, unfortunately we got off track on uh, discussion of coffee, but um, <laughs> uh it, so you, you know, very quickly. I mean, you know, uh, listeners will have to will have to read the book. Um, sure, it's a short uh, which, book, which I should anyway, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, what what is you what do you recommend that we do? I mean, sort of very, yeah, briefly. I mean, I'm sorry about that, but.
1: Yeah, Yeah, no, no, no. It's fine. Um, so, you know, the, the core argument of the book really has to do with this polarization phenomenon. It would be one thing, you know, just, it would be sort of regrettable were it the case that the country, you know, the citizens of a democratic, major democratic nation were kind of sorted into their own hives. Um, but it turns out that that kind of sorting is also sort of cognitively disabling in, in a particular way. Um, the belief polarization phenomenon really just is this sort of yes, man, uh, uh, phenomenon. You know, you interact more and more with people who are just like you. Um, you become more extreme in your own commitments, more confident in your judgments. And you also to come, come to hold more radical versions of those judgments. And so, um, there's a whole chapter in the book, just about the data about, uh, this belief polarization phenomenon. When you, Sort of fit that our vulnerability, as it is, to this belief polarization phenomenon, when you fit that into the broader sociological story about um, the political saturation of our social and local social environments, you'll see that every argument that listeners might be familiar with for the dangers of online echo chambers applies a fortiori for our everyday physical environments, the 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 world around us is giving us louder and louder echoes of our own political voices and that makes us more extreme as we become more extreme the people on the other side start looking more and more alien incompetent depraved benighted um and we lose the basis for seeing them regarding them morally as people who are entitled to the equality that by law uh they in fact enjoy so that's the story the um the the uh, normative or the prescriptive, we should say, sort of upshot of that story is ultimately that um, our overdoing of democracy has put us in this position. So the solution can't be more democracy. You know, uh, John Dewey and Jane Addams are famous, you know, the cure for the ills of democracy is always more democracy. That's usually correct, perhaps. It's not correct in this case that this is an autoimmune problem for democracy. Um, And so uh, the prescriptive upshot is um, we have to find, recapture, if necessary, build, forge um, venues for social cooperation where our political allegiances are not merely bracketed, or set aside, or were still suppressed, but rather that our political allegiances are simply beside the point. Just we have to find things to do together that are cooperative and pro-social, where it just, you know, who the, who the other people voted for, who are participants in the activity, is just something that doesn't come up, is not part of we don't see in what we're doing an expression of our political valences. We just see what we're doing as aimed at something else and politics isn't part of that. Now, I know listeners are thinking, what in the world could that be? And <laughs> uh, and I invite them to read the book because I think that that's actually a face of the problem. That limitation on our imagination is itself the upshot of – political polarization, belief polarization under conditions of political saturation. It's not the counterexample. That's a symptom of the problem that you couldn't imagine something of the sort I'm describing um, is one of the problems. I'll give one last thing, I promise, um, on this. I once gave a talk about this uh, in one of the early versions. And somebody asked the question, well, what am I supposed to do? What what do you recommend? Um, And this is sort of part of the reason why the prescriptive stuff in the book doesn't come until the very end. And even there, it's sort of second order rather than um, directly prescriptive. You know, I give a description of the kind of thing you should try to do rather than a list of things you should do. Um, So I said, well, look, you know, one thing that we might do to sort of help desaturate our, our local environment is, you know, why don't you volunteer to help clean up the litter in your local park? And the audience member looked at me and said, that's a liberal thing to do. And maybe he was right. I so I thought, gee, I, maybe, maybe the prescriptive stuff can't be on that order. It can't be just a menu. Here are a couple of activities to engage in. Maybe rather the prescription is, as I decided it should be in the book, there's a certain kind of thing one ought to do, try to find something to do that you can that you honestly don't regard as expressive of or signaling your political valences mm-hmm. and see what happens.
0: Yeah, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me, let me, you know, I, I shouldn't, but very, very, very quickly, I, uh, uh, in, in Iowa, I, uh, tried to, I thought, you know, let me, let me take up something interesting and new, um, skeet shooting. Oh, my. Yeah. No, I'm totally, like, down for, you know, this would be really cool. So I investigated. I just right? didn't think you'd be into guns. Well, I would, you know, it was like uh, Iowa, um, probably yeah, guns, sure. you, know, you yeah. know, just go with the flow. Uh, I'm not going to kill animals, but – right shooting clay pigeons, I'm totally, that'd be great. I mean, it's a great skill. So I investigated, um, you know, joining, you know, how, to, how do you do this? Um, and I found out that all the gun clubs were NRA gun clubs, which meant to join the club, you had to join the NRA. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. And that's apparently the way it works, right? Um, that you either belong to an NRA gun club, which are – apparently the the majority or um or you know maybe there's a couple you know outlier clubs that are unaffiliated but they're ha- they're few and far between hmm. so so that that was it it's like you know i i was not able to pursue something that in theory might have uh you know been a perfectly fine uh expression of my own sort of interest and you know not In any political way, I don't see why, I don't see why you know skeet shooting would necessarily be political. Sure. But the context in which I was, you know, could could do it was political. I I was not able to do it because it was beyond my control unless I wanted to join the NRA, which is what I was not going to do.
1: That's right. That's a good example of saturation.
0: Right.
1: yeah, Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, We've, um, we my my wife and I started going to bluegrass concerts. Oh, I think that bluegrass is great. Anyway, so which, yeah, which has worked out fine. Yeah, who knows how the people there at the station and I, I I'm assuming a lot of them are conservative, but I have no idea. We sit around and talk about the mandolin player. It's, yeah. it's actually very cool. So what's what's next for you? I mean, we're uh,
0: we are out of time. So very yeah, very, well, very quickly.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, the next thing is. Um, uh, the my my often frequent I should say co-author uh, and collaborator Scott Aiken and I have just um, are just finishing up a short book uh, now uh, called Political Argument in a Polarized Age. He and I work together on sort of the intersection of um, democratic theory and um, social epistemology slash uh, argumentation theory, and so we've written a bunch of things uh, on. Um, political disagreement and argument in a democratic society, and we have uh, a new book that should be out uh, in the spring um, that's about um, argumentation and the, the virtues of civility um, under conditions where we have good reason to think, even in our own cases, uh, that um, polarization has uh, impacted uh, our judgments.
0: Good. Good. Very good. Yeah. So, uh, well, um, I wish you luck with that endeavor, and um, thanks again for talking to New Books in Philosophy about your uh, your new book, Overdoing Democracy.
1: Well, thank you so much, Carrie. Okay,
0: bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Robert Talese, W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. We've been talking about his new book, Overdoing Democracy. Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. That's forthcoming from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast and thank you for listening.